All right, we're going to get into it today. I like to read, um, but I do like to read. And I got this book a little while ago called The Scottish Chiefs. I also like movies. And this book is what inspired the movie Braveheart. And so this book is The Scottish Chiefs. It was written in the early half of the 18th century based on fact, as much as they could gather. And the one I have is almost 100 years old, and it smells great, which I used to do a lot until I realized that was mold and you could get sick. So it still smells good, just at a distance. So this book is called The Scottish Chiefs. Now, when I'm reading it, um, just last week, I realized that there... There was this crazy thing that I, that, I, that I realized about, that I connected between the text and what was in this book. Now, before I set that up, there is a main difference that you should note. In the movie, William Wallace, he gets married. In the book, The Scottish Chiefs, he's already married. And he's actually a chief. He's a king of the land. And so he's got a castle. He's got his lovely maid Marion, or Lady Marion. Wrong thing. So Lady Marion and William Wallace, and they rule over this land, and they have servants, serfs, people that work the land, people that serve them in their castle. And um, as they're going through this, as the book has started, I realized that um, there's a big difference between what we would understand as Lord and Master and what William Wallace and the Scottish chiefs understood as Lord and Master. Now, the reason I say this is because at the very beginning of the story, Lady Marion is brutally murdered by an evil English tyrant. He comes in and murders her unjustly. And Wallace, upon hearing about this, rallies up his servants, rallies up his village people to go and seek justice against this evil murderer. Now, when, when, I, when I saw that, I, I just had to ask the question, what servant would fight for his master? What, what trumpeter... What, what slave, almost, would fight on behalf of the death of his master's wife? It wasn't my wife. Why would I fight against his wife? I realized that there is a profound lack of understanding in our culture and in my own heart about what it means to have a godly master. And when we're reading this text, as we'll talk about today, we see Paul has a lovely, a godly, a a awesome devotion to his master. And and this is hard for us to understand. We we live in a very autonomous culture. We live, and part of this is wonderful, right? Autonomy. It's a self-law. We live in a very self-law culture. We have a lot of freedom. Part of that is great. Part of that is wonderful. We have freedoms that our government has recognized that God gave us, and they uphold those. But like all gifts, we abuse them. And part of that abuse is neglect. We don't necessarily understand where those gifts and freedoms come from in Scripture. But the other part, the more related part, is that we do not connect ourselves deeply to anyone in authority above us. We are not invested in our authority like the village and the serfs and the servants were invested in Lady Wallace and William Wallace. The masters that they, they had back then, that they understood it was a loving, mutual relationship. The Lord over the land provided protection, uh, provided jobs, provided security, provided wisdom, uh, would often be the judge as well and, and uh, delineate between disputes. The Lords in that time, and I believe in Scripture to a large degree, um, it really had a different relationship than I think we have today. 
In the Bible, the word Lord is used often and teacher as well. And both of those things simultaneously and separately incorporate aspects of what the word we would understand as master. The word master is translated into five different Hebrew words and seven different Greek words. Yeah, seven different Greek terms with root meanings in a combination of, of all these things. Uh, master in the New Testament, in the Bible, it means owner, it means elder, it means sovereign, teacher, the superintendent, a lord, a sir, rabbi, captain. We most often use this in the Bible to describe Jesus. And so when Paul is talking about Jesus as his Lord, when Paul is living out his devotion to his master, he had a kinship with that master that the people in William Wallace's land had with him. When his wife was um, killed, they rallied around him and they had a cry. They grabbed their, um, oh man, claymores, that's what they're called. They grabbed their claymores and they cried, Death and Lady Marian. They went to the death to fight for restoring the name and the glory to Lady Marian and her husband, William Wallace. In John, Jesus says, You call me Master and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. In the Scottish chief's village, they loved their master, and they were concerned for his name above their own, even above their own lives. So, today, we'll be talking about our Lord, our living Master, Jesus, and our devotion to him. We'll be answering the question, what does it look like to serve a living master, our master, Jesus? With that said, please stand for today's reading of God's word. This is from Acts 12. Nope, Acts 26, 12 through 20. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But... Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Let me pray. Father God, your word is wise, your word is powerful, your word is true, and your word is Jesus. May we hear what we should hear today and let go of what we should let go of. May you convict us of our sin and may we have peace. May we enjoy the love with which you love us and died for us. Um, please be with us today. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. So today, we are back in Acts. And guess what? Paul is still in chains. The Romans are still annoyed. And the Jewish leaders are still very angry. The Jewish leaders have just jumped the shark, per se. Anyone get that? 
Yeah, happy days? Huh? Jumped the shark? Come on. I actually don't remember that, but I saw it on Twitter. Um, happy days reference. They jumped the shark. Now, if you don't know that reference... Um, the show was losing viewers drastically. They were on their way out. And so in order to bring viewers back, they promoted this giant episode where Fonzie jumped on some jet skis and jumped over a not very scary looking sharp. Shark. Shark. Yeah, sharp shark. Happy days. Fonzie jumped over the shark in order to gain viewers back. The Jews are doing that exact same thing. They've got a new leader, and so they're jumping the shark. They're trying to do something fantastic to get done what they need to get done. They're bringing eyeballs back to Paul, who at this point has been sitting in jail for two years. They want him dead, and they're trying to get eyeballs back on it to make sure it happens. So I have to set this up a little bit, and it might take a minute. Um, what we're going through two chapters today, so you get a two for one if you're uh, concerned about that. We'll go through chapter 25 and chapter 26 today. So a, a brief narrative of the overview of this. It's not brief, just kidding. Paul was held in prison under Governor Felix for two years. Now there's two guys, Felix and Festus. Felix came first, right? And Festus came secondus. So... Felix is, in, is there, and then there's this transition of power to the next governor because the old governor, Felix, eventually makes a very huge mistake by using his army to squash the Jews, and he kills a lot of them, and Emperor Nero brings Felix back to Rome and just takes care of him. It can't happen. The Jews at the time actually enjoyed quite a bit of privilege compared to other people groups in the Roman Empire, but that said, they still could not revolt against the Roman Empire. And Felix, when he is enjoying, he's, he's allowing them to enjoy their privilege, creates a revolt by squashing and, and overreacting to a situation and kills a bunch of Jews when he shouldn't have. And so Emperor Nero takes him back to Rome and he's erased from history. This is important because the, the new Roman governor, second, Festus, is coming to the seat of power beginning as a governor who um, he's, he was preceded by a man who was killed for abusing his power and displeasing Emperor Nero. Nero is a bit of a hothead. Um, he's the one that tore down the temple in a few years after all this takes place. So the new Roman Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Festus, uh, sorry, Roman ruler, the governor Festus, comes to Caesarea where Paul is being held in prison and immediately inherits all of his predecessors' uh, political problems, like keeping the rowdy Jewish people under control without sparking another revolt, um, having to deal with a court case that was less from his predecessor that he didn't understand. It's a little bit like taking a job where everything's been broken by the guy who had it before you, and you're the one responsible to fix it. However, you're at a big disadvantage if you're Festus because you know nothing about the Jewish people. So Festus starts off by calling Paul to court to hear why all these Jewish leaders want him dead. The problem is that these are Jewish issues. These are Jewish theological customs issues, and he knows nothing under, about it. But that said, he hears Paul's testimony, and he understands that this is not punishable by death. Under Roman law, he, was in, he in no way was empowered to kill uh, Paul for what Paul was being accused of. And so Festus is stumped. Again, he doesn't want to revolt against him, but he also doesn't want his boss, the emperor, to kill him for breaking Roman law. So what do we do? What does he do? Well, Festus decides that he will try and placate the Jewish leaders, because there was a mob and Paul was just one guy, by allowing Paul to come to trial in Jerusalem. But 
Paul remembered that there was a hit squad waiting for him on the way to Jerusalem. And so he pulls his trump card. He appeals to Caesar, which was the right thing to do as a Roman citizen. And because there had not yet been a conviction or a displaying of sentence, a dispensing of sentence, Paul could appeal to be seen by Caesar himself and in his court. And so that's what he does. The courts are stalled. Let's get this on the road. I want to preach to the emperor. Take me there. That's what Paul says. And this is effectively the end of the matter legally, judicially. That's the end of it, except for one tiny thing. Governor Festus doesn't want to die like his predecessor. So he gets, um, so Festus is off the hook with the Jews, except Paul appeals to go to Caesar. And even though Paul's not done anything wrong, he, he, Festus doesn't know what to do. Festus had no idea how to formulate a charge against Paul in a way that could make any sense to, to Rome. If he sends Paul to Nero with no charge, it's going to be wasting their time, and there goes Festus's head. There's no actual crime, and so he's in a rough spot. Now, providentially, and it's ironic that I say that because aren't all things providential? I thought on that for a while. But providentially, the northern governor called King Agrippa comes down to welcome Festus, and he brings his lover, his sister, this woman Bernice, with him to come down, and they bring all their generals, and they bring a giant party to welcome the new uh, Festus governor into into the thing. Now, this King Agrippa was kind of a, a unique guy. He is a king of the people. He knows the Jewish history. His father is the King Herod who killed James and imprisoned Peter back at the beginning of Acts. This, the son of King Herod is this new King Agrippa. And he had quite a lot of power in Jewish religious affairs because he had been given custodianship over the temple and had the authority to appoint the high priest. Now, this high priest is now in this town where they've all met, trying to get Paul killed. And so you have an outside authority, a Roman, uh, but also a Jew, just like Paul, comes into town, and he and, and Festus feels saved. He's like, I'll just have Paul talk to this guy, and everything will be all right. At this point, we're going to dive into the story and talk a little bit more about Paul and his master, Jesus. Now, Paul is standing in the midst of a crowd. Right, So Paul is brought, is brought from house arrest, and he's taken out, and he's put in a courtroom. And this is a courtroom of the holy temple. And so it's an aspect of the temple where judicial matters are um, discussed. But in this, in this, you have King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, and you have all five of their military captains. All of them decked out with as much gold and flair as you could imagine. Everyone is there in all their splendor to, to display their glory. They want to be known as glorious, wonderful people. And so the, the Bible says they came in some pomp. And it's the only time that word is used in Scripture. And I'm glad because it's hard for me to say. But pomp, they, were, they, they came in pomp. And it was a wonderful majesty and glory. Uh, all self-glory, but they came in there. And now imagine them sitting there. Waiting, watching, the whole town is there. All 70 priests and the high priest, everyone is there. And Paul comes in, a guy who's been beat up multiple times. Uh, he's smaller, probably bald, and not very threatening. Walks in in chains, chained to a guard or, or himself just chained. Now Paul is standing there in the midst of this crowded room full of finely dressed people. And they are there to judge him. And again, he gets to preach the gospel to them. 
He is in rags, but the power is not in his clothes. The power is in his message. It is in the name that he serves. Paul comes in the name of the Lord. Think back to a time in the Old Testament. There was a young man who served in the name of the Lord, and he fought and killed a giant. You'd think that these um, historians, these Jewish historians would know, especially Grippa, what was about to happen. He goes in his speech. Now, he's given, he's given a chance to, to speak. And he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope that is made that in the promise of God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And this is the hope for which I am accused, O king. Why is it incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? Now, Festus had prompted Agrippa a little bit and said, Hey, I don't know anything about this guy, Paul. I don't know anything about the Jews. But Paul is saying that Jesus is alive, and I heard that they killed him. Help me out. And so Agrippa comes in, knowing all this background, and Paul, knowing that Agrippa knows all this background, he goes straight to the heart of the matter. Why is it incredible? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God should raise the dead? Now, this is where it gets to us. We serve a living master. We serve a king who conquered death. There's a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's actually a really joyful book. Um, It's all about our freedom from slavery. How God, what he did um, to free us from our own sin because he loves us. And so Paul continues. He says, why is it thought incredible that God should raise one from the dead? And then he goes on to tell how he used to kill Christians. He brings his testimony. He figures Agrippa knows the Jews. Agrippa's heard of me. I'm a very fantastic Jew. And he says that almost self-mockingly because he knows it means nothing to get himself any favor from God. But he says, I'm a fantastic Jew. And then, and, and even then, I used to kill the Christians. King Agrippa, I used to kill the Christians. I used to be the one that would hunt them down. And I got authority from all the other men in this room to go hunt them down and kill them. I held cloaks while Stephen was stoned. Paul explains his darker past. And he does so to contrast it with what he's doing now. With the simplicity of what he's being accused of. And I saw, on his way to Damascus, Paul says, And I saw on a way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, hear that phrase, kick against the goads. Jesus is speaking to Paul as he has himself from heaven, seated at the right hand of God. In all his glory, as God begins to put Jesus' enemies underneath his feet. And Jesus opens the skies and comes to Paul and blinds him and says, Why are you kicking against the goads? Now that's kind of a weird phrase to throw in there. Here's what it means. Jesus is explaining to Paul that I am guiding you. This goad that he's referring to is an ox goad. And so as the ox is going through the field, if it starts to go a different way, he gets poked to go the right way. And if he, gets, if he kicks against the, the goad, he's literally taking his heel, his body, his hip, and ramming it into the, the sorry, sharp, ramming it into the goad. That's very painful, and it's also not going to get him anywhere. Jesus is saying to Paul, why are you making this worse on yourself? Repent. Why are you kicking against the goad? I am sovereign. I direct your path. I determine where you are going. 
And so Jesus says this to Paul, and he's, he took control of Paul's life at this time. Paul being a free agent in, in a human, just like us, free agents that God made, wonderful creations. Paul is rebelling against God, and God comes and shows us a wonderful picture of salvation. He shows us that all Christians get saved the same way. God invades our life. God saves us against our will. God puts life into dead bodies. I don't know if you've ever done CPR, but you don't give CPR to a corpse. We are corpses, and we don't need CPR. We need God to give us life. And so that's what happens against Paul's will. He is saved, and he repents. He is not headed in the direction God wanted him to go. And so Jesus goads him and directs him and steers him. And so Paul responds, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And it has nothing to do with who Paul is. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness, a servant Jesus is declaring himself master over Paul. And a witness, Jesus is giving Paul a testimony, a message, something to say, into which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you. He's telling Paul he, uh, he's going to appear to him later. And he does. Paul goes out in the desert for three years and Jesus teaches him face to face like he did right then. And so Jesus radically invades Paul's life, displaying this salvation. And Paul later writes about it. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Paul had done every work he could. Paul was probably the closest to a holy guy as there ever existed. And still he was far, far from God. He obeyed the law better than anyone. And everyone in that courtroom knew it. And he's telling them. And in that sentence, he's condemning them. Because he knows he was better than them. And they know he was better than them. And Paul is saying, all of our betterness doesn't matter. Squat. Because God is holy. And he saves us. So, um, he he radically invades him. and, And shows him what salvation is. And then he gives Paul a mission to go and to preach. He says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's giving Paul a message. And in doing this, he's telling Paul a few other things as well that Paul writes down in Romans. In Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. The Bible right here just says that there is no such thing as an atheist. We all know there's a God. Some of us suppress the truth. All of us suppress the truth. Paul suppressed the truth. Paul believed in a God, but he was an anti-theist. He was not an atheist. If you're in here today and you do not believe in God, I'm telling you, at your inmost core, the Bible says you believe in God. Stop suppressing the truth. Do not kick against the goad, as Jesus said. Give up. Quit. Find your loving Savior who died for you on the cross. This is the gospel. And so right before Paul reveals that in Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So what Paul is doing here is saying that the power of God for salvation is the gospel. It is news. It is something that happened at one time in history. And when God gives us life, we repent and we believe in that. And we have a peaceful, loving relationship with him. Because this passage here, it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That means that all people have a relationship with God. Some of peace and some of wrath. And if that's scary to you today, and if that messes with you or kind of makes you a little angry at me, please know that I too once suppressed the truth. All Christians even still at times suppress the truth. The living out of the Christian life is a continual repentance and believing of truth. Once you've repented, that's not the end of your repenting. That's just the start. God continues to show us more sin and give us more joy in that process. So Paul is saying all of these things to these people because they know this stuff. They've heard this. They've read the law. All these things that I just talked about were written in the Old Testament as well. And these folks read the law. They were just suppressing the truth. This is the mighty mercy of God that we have breath and can still repent. This is the mighty mercy of God at the time to Felix, who ignored it, to Festus, who said that Paul was crazy here in a second, and to Agrippa, who suppressed it because he wanted power. The mighty mercy is that when we turn from our sin, which is the root of all issues in life, we are turning to a loving and forgiving God. You do not turn away from wrath to more wrath. We turn away from wrath to peace, to hope. That is the fear of God when we see how much he's done for us, how bad we could be, and how big that gap was that he crossed to come get us. Christians are live, live in a turned and turning state. We turn away from wrath and to God, and we continually must turn back to God, away from our sin. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. Now, we fight that, but it can be a joy to quit. And Paul says the same thing for non-Christians. It is peaceful to become a Christian. Now, what is the response? He gives this wonderful testimony, very similar to all his other testimonies in um, the few other chapters before this. But then the, the unique response, Festus just blurts out, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The, the authorized Andy version says, you're nuts. Dead men don't come back from the dead. Dead men are dead, Paul. You've been reading too much, boss. So he looks at him and says this. Dead people don't rise. But again, this makes me think. This is what makes Christianity different. Dead men do rise. And even if you are an evolutionary biologist, or you just believe in evolution, in in any of its forms, you still believe that dead things came to life. You just happen to believe it was a rock that made itself a domino that became a cat. And I mock in love. I really do. This is silly. You believe that rocks became people, that dead things became alive. I do too. I just happen to think that thing that came alive has a name, the word of life, Jesus. There's hope in God, not in rocks. And certainly not in people. Even anti-theists believe this is possible. But we suppress the truth. So, they call Paul crazy. And what does he say? I am not crazy. I am not out of my mind. Festus. Oh, excellent Festus. 
I am not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. Friends, if your faith is based on feeling only, you will not get very far in discussing Jesus with your friends. You have a lot more questions And you should have a lot more questions if we only believe because of our feelings. If we only believe because of how I feel about God, my own personal experience. I tell you, our own personal experience with God is wonderful and needed to grow and to pursue Him. But but even if you do not have that own personal experience, it is still true. Christianity is rational. It is the only belief system that is thoroughly and fully rational. It is the only one that makes sense because we serve a master who created rationality. The word logos in John 1, that's where we get our word logic. Logos means the word, and from that we get a logic, we get understanding. Jesus is logic. Christianity is rational. We must not base our faith simply on how we feel. But if we believe what is true, our feelings will follow. Um, it is the only hope that we have is, is to, 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 to offer to a dying world. Not only my testimony. Your testimony is great. Paul uses it. I encourage you to use it when you talk with your neighbors or when you talk with kings about Jesus. But as you do, incorporate rational truth. Because your testimony is based on rational truth. King Agrippa knew this. And Paul knew King Agrippa knew it because he called him out. He literally said, King, after talking to Festus, he says, I am not crazy. These are true and rational things. He turns over to King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe this? I know you believe this. He didn't even give him time to answer. Do you believe this? I know you believe this. It wasn't arrogant. He was calling King Agrippa to the carpet. It was humble. He wanted King Agrippa to repent, to know Jesus and to have peace. And so he, he does this because King Agrippa read the law in the Old Testament, read the prophets, and, and he, Paul wanted him to repent. But King Agrippa does not repent for the single fact that it would mean that he would have to side with the ragdoll short bald guy standing in the middle of all his pomp and circumstance. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give up our pride. And so we see three rejections of the gospel in Felix and in Festus and in King Agrippa. In Felix, it was cowardice. He didn't want to make the choice. In Festus, it was ignorance, and he liked his ignorance. And in King Agrippa, it was arrogance, and he liked his power. So we're going to end this talk going back to our original question. What does it look like to serve a living master? I would say it looks like two things. But before I do that, I want to remind you, next week we're going to go into the last part of um, Acts. There's two more weeks left in Acts. Next week we're going to see what happens, because after this scenario, after Paul preaches the gospel to them, they confer. King Agrippa, his sister wife, and uh, the other two guys, and, and some of the other leaders all confer in the back. And you know what they confer about? Hey, there's no reason to kill Paul. He's crazy, but there's no reason to kill him. He appealed to Caesar, let's make it Caesar's issue. And, and it's very curious because they do not define what they defend even having Paul in jail for. 
They should have, because Nero's going to get upset. But it's curious to me that they did not define that. They never came, even after questioning Paul, they never came to an understanding about what he did that ended up him up in jail. And I, think it's simp- and I think Luke didn't put it in there when he wrote the book because it's very plain and obvious. Paul was only in jail because he preached the gospel. Paul was only in jail because he told people uh, that God died for them, that there was sin in their life and they needed to repent and believe the truth. And he did it a lot. And so it made people mad and they threw him in jail. Now, what does it look like to serve? So come back next week. What does it look like to serve a living master, Jesus? It means two things. One, it means we should seek God's glory, not our own glory. Paul did not seek his own glory. In his old life where he persecuted Christians, he sought his glory daily. He sought his glory by obeying the law and by doing everything that the traditions were added to the law and then by persecuting Christians. But in his new life, he sought God's glory. What does that mean for us in our lives? It means we work hard. It means we preach to kings. But in preaching to kings, we must be ready first to preach to our friends. We do not know what God will do with our lives. One of you may preach the gospel to our president. One of you may preach the gospel to a teacher at our public school. One of you may preach the gospel to your neighbor. We must be ready for what God brings us. Paul got ready by preaching the gospel to his friends, his co-workers, the other Jewish leaders first. And then from there, he worked out and was eventually brought up to kings. And this reminds me of a verse in Proverbs where um, uh, the, the proverb writer says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now, Paul did not get himself in front of these kings. God orchestrated this. God told him he would do it, and then God brought him there. But the principle in that for Paul, in believing that scripture, probably having memorized that one, Paul knew what he was doing. He thought through how to love people and preach the gospel to them. And so I would say to you, think through how you preach the gospel to your family. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. We do not save souls with Andy's really good argument. Because it's not that good. We save souls. Um, Jesus saves souls. And we, we get to participate by preaching the gospel. And it's a lot of fun. But in that, work it out. Think about it. Pray for the people that you know to know Jesus so that Jesus might save them. And in also, a second application of that, work hard at your job. If you're an accountant, really understand math. Like, just get to know it. If you're an artist, get great with colors. If if you're a digger and you dig holes, get great at digging holes to the glory of God. All vocations are holy. There is no vocation that is more holy than another. So, get skillful in your work. God orchestrated this stuff for his glory and for himself. But Paul did one other thing and he was seeking God's glory. He did what Peter describes in 1 Peter 15. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Paul knew that he had arguments that would defeat all other arguments because Jesus tells us in the Gospels, I will give you words that will be able to demolish strongholds. The logic of Christianity is irrefutable. But as we wield that sword, we must do it with gentleness and respect, out of love. We must do it because we love people, not for our own glory, for God's glory. 
So what does it look like to serve a living master? We want to see glory brought back to Christ's name here in our city, by our politicians, by our schools, by our homes, by our neighborhoods, by our sports clubs. We want to see glory given to Christ as we worship him in all areas of life. Remember what we say? All of Christ, for all of life, for all of Denver. And like the servants of the Scottish kings, we fight for our master, but we do not fight against our enemies like they did. We fight for our enemies because Christ died for them. So we preach hope to a dying world. We seek God's glory. And number two, we preach the truth in love. Paul tells us this, and this is the heartbeat of his mission, and we'll end with this. Jesus, a call to Jesus is a call to come and die. It is not a call to come and see. It is not a call to come and be a better you. A call to Jesus is a call to come and die. This is why we baptize. We we have died with Christ. Paul explains this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. There's the death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, look, there's good news. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The call to be a Christian, the call to continue as a Christian, is a call to come and die. And in that there is hope, because Jesus has conquered death. Remember, there was a death of death and the death of Christ. Death died. And so we must die to death, to our sin. Come and die. And we fight differently, but the rally cry, the rally cry is the same. It is not death and Lady Marian, but it is death and Lord Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts as we want to take communion today and celebrate that death and the conquering of death. Pray with me. Father God, you bring peace to the world. And in a moment, we will invite all Believers, to come and take communion, to come and celebrate the peace that you have wrought with your own blood, that we need to be reminded about daily, that I need to be reminded about minute by minute. It is not our own strength that we pursue you. It is your strength by your blood. It is not my sacrifice. It is your conquering. You are Lord over all the earth, whether the earth has fully realized it yet or not. But we know that you will Make every knee bow. And so in this we pray for our friends that do not yet know you. Please, Jesus, give us boldness. It is scary, especially because we see them so often. Please give us boldness with our friends that we may pray for them on a more regular basis. That we may persuade, because none of us know if we have tomorrow or not. Father, as Christians, may we continue to repent of our sin and find peace with you. Because you love us. You are the only one that makes sense to follow. You are our master. May we seek the glory of your name. Amen.